Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone, this is the Mysteries Abound podcast and this is your host Paul. Episode 61 this week and it's entitled The Top 10 Haunted Areas of the White House. But first of all this week from the bbc.co.uk website, The Stasi Files, the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle and it's written by Chris Bowlby. More than 20 years after the Berlin Wall fell, you might think that the Stasi has been consigned to history. But a new generation wants to know what the East German secret police did to their parents. And computing wizardry is about to make it easier to find out. The German Democratic Republic, or GDR, and its agencies did not disappear immediately once the Berlin Wall fell. For some weeks afterwards, many Stasi staff remained in their offices, trying to destroy evidence that could land them in jail or expose their spies in foreign countries. But they ran into technical difficulties. The Stasi was an organisation that loved to keep paper, says Joachim Hausler, who works for the Stasi Archives Authority today. It therefore owned few shredders, and those it did have were of poor East German quality and rapidly broke down. So thousands of documents were hastily torn by hand and stuffed into sacks. The plan was to burn or chemically destroy the contents later. But events overtook the plan, the Stasi was dissolved as angry demonstrators massed outside and invaded its offices and the new federal authority for Stasi archives inherited all the torn paper. It amounts, says Hassler, to the biggest puzzle in the world, estimated at between four and six hundred million pieces of paper, some no larger than a fingernail. The authority has had a small team in Bavaria reconstructing torn documents by hand, but humans struggle to cope with the smaller fragments, At present rates, it would take centuries to reconstruct the documents. So now authorities are turning to technology. Computers, say Hausler, are quicker, cheaper and can match and remember things humans can't. The particular computer taking on the task is the e-puzzler, made by the same people who invented the MP3 player, the Fraunhofer Institute in Berlin. Bits of torn paper of all shapes and sizes are taken out of the sacks, ironed flat, then scanned. Each piece, however small, is given a computer file into which is entered any information about, say, paper colour, handwriting or print on it, any significant acronyms that might link it to a particular Stasi office. 
then a complex mathematical program is brought into action, matching that information and the paper's shape with other fragments from among the millions. A technician showed me a test run as pieces moved around a screen before finally forming a reconstructed Stasi document. For Dr. Bertram Nicolay, who heads the Fraunhofer team, this is a highly personal challenge. He befriended an exile from East Germany, Jürgen Fuchs, who he believes had been deliberately exposed to radiation while in a Stasi prison. He died from a rare form of leukaemia. He died relatively young because of this exposure. So for me, that's a further motivation for this project, he says. But it is not only paper documents that are yielding their Stasi secrets. In a room in the former Stasi headquarters in Berlin, I found a small team working on digitising the thousands of sound recordings left by the secret police. They too can yield vital information about what the Stasi did. Most recordings are unlabeled, so workers here never know what they are about to listen to. Some are bizarre. There is Erich Milke, aged head of the Stasi, as the revolution against communism approached, recorded in a secret meeting trying to explain to his senior colleagues the corrupting dangers posed to East German youth by punk, skinheads and heavy metal music. Another recording is of two agents trying clumsily to plant a bug in a flat, smashing a vase, unaware that their colleagues have already planted a bug and are listening in. In East Germany, it sometimes seems that everyone was spying on everyone else. Other recordings are tragic. A woman in a secret 1950s Stasi trial wails desperately as she is sentenced to death. Katri Jurix, who runs this team, told me how making sense of these recordings often involves amazing detective work of a kind which no computer could achieve. Her colleagues start with an idea of what or who they are listening to. If it is a recording made in someone's home, sometimes the only clue is, say, a TV football commentary in the background. The researchers painstakingly work out who is playing in the match, when and where it was, and begin from there to piece together who is being recorded. At other times, audible church bells are analysed minutely to see if they match a particular town or village's bells. So why go to so much trouble to research and reconstruct so much? Partly, the German government believes the country has a duty to come to terms with this part of its totalitarian past. But for many individuals too, the hope is that the Stasi documents will explain mysteries enable people and families to understand and overcome what happened to them. In another part of the former Stasi HQ, I met Catherine Baer, who runs an agency helping the victims of forced adoption in East Germany. Children were removed by the Stasi from parents deemed politically unreliable. In Catherine's case, she was four years old when they came for her mother. When my mother unlocked the door, they tore it open. We were taken down a narrow street into the market square in Gira, where we were separated. For many years I feared that anyone on the street could take me away, she says. She did not see her mother again for 19 years, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But now she's hoping the reconstructed documents will explain more about how such things were possible. 
Everybody's really hoping there will be information in these documents. Of course, we can't tell how long it will take, she says. Even if the computer works quickly, it'll take some time for the archivists to sort everything out. But I certainly have high hopes. And what of those who worked for the Stasi? As more emerges about their activities and the massive information they kept, does former Stasi Colonel Gotthold Schramm have any regrets? At times he is defiant. You can't have collective guilt, he says. Guilt is an individual thing. With hindsight, we didn't need this giant network of unofficial collaborators, he adds. We were too worried about what might happen. We should have trusted people more. But they did not trust the people when they were in power. And thousands of fragmented lives and fragmented documents still bear powerful witness to how a secret police force spread throughout a society. And if you visit the Mysteries Abound show notes at www.origins.info, click on the Mysteries Abound show notes link, episode 61, and then the link to this article. There are some photos in the short slideshow of people working through the process of reassembling these documents. On January the 30th, 1540, in Mexico City, at a time when Spain was carving out an empire in the New World, an epic trial got underway. An ordained Catholic priest named Pedro Luis Calderon was being prosecuted for practicing black magic. The priest actually bragged about the powers he had acquired, according to records a researcher is working on publishing. He claimed to be able to teleport between continents, make himself invisible, make women fall in love with him, predict the future, turn metals into gold, summon and exorcise demons, and most importantly, discover buried treasure. From the www.livescience.com website, the 16th century trial records reveal a priest's magic superpowers. He really typifies all of the major types of learned magic, from summoning and conjuring demons, to exorcising demons, to the powers of cloaking himself, making himself invisible, says John Chuchiak IV, a professor at Missouri State University who translates and publishes documents recording the opening of the trial in his new book, The Inquisition in New Spain, 1536 to 1820. He could hypnotise people too. It's one of the earliest, I think, descriptions of hypnotism mesmerising people. At the start of the trial, Calderon was denounced in a speech by Miguel López de Legazapi, the Secretary of the Holy Office, who would later become a conquistador in the Philippines. 
In translation, the trial records state that many persons have made it known before him that the said Calderon knows of the black arts and that he learned them from others. The records go on to claim that Calderon is able to make himself invisible and can travel across great distances in a short amount of time. It's just fascinating. The story just goes on and on, Chachiak told Live Science of the more than 100 pages of trial records. The prosecutor, Fray Juan de Zamarga, the Franciscan Archbishop of Mexico and Apostolic Inquisitor of New Spain, was known for his extreme punishments. Other people he had their tongues split for very minor blasphemy, says Chachiak. In the end, for reasons unknown, the bishop gave Calderon only a minor punishment, exile back to Spain, and a prohibition from giving Catholic services for two years. Zumarga may have wanted to get rid of him without publicly executing a priest. What happens to Calderon after he is exiled is not known. According to the trial records, Calderon claimed that he went to hell itself to acquire some of his abilities. At one point, the records say he was in Naples working for a viceroy. He and three men went to explore a cave. He said it was 3,000 leagues below the surface of the earth, says Chachiac, summarising the Spanish language account. Apparently the men got stuck there, with most of Calderon's companions dying. He actually descended to the depths of hell, he said and there he learned the secrets of the science of the black arts and alchemy. Calderon did not return empty-handed, Chachiac said. He brought back books from hell. He said one of them had the signature of the devil, the prince of darkness. When Calderon was arrested, his library was seized. None of the books contained the signature of the devil. However, some intriguing books were found including Albertus Magnus, Secrets, a manual on how to conduct exorcisms, and a book by Dr. Arnaldo de Novellanova called The Treasure of Treasures, in which it describes techniques to find buried treasures. The library also held archival letters written in some mysterious writing, a certain cipher that he claimed that he could read, Chachiak said. No one else could read it. Why a priest like Calderon may have strayed so far off may be due to two rather earthly things, bragging rights and financial gain. Chachiak notes that Calderon loved to brag. After the trial was over, he caught pneumonia, was sent to the infirmary, and while there, he was bragging about his ability to cloak himself and to win over almost any woman that he could, he said, again summarising the Spanish account. In other instances, he talks about all the women that he slept with. He talks about how he was able to get away with having mistresses and sneaking in and out of their bedrooms. His supposed invisibility powers helping with this. There is also evidence that he profited from his abilities. Records indicate that, superpowers or not, he often found buried treasure. According to the translated trial record, 
Gil Gonzalez de Benavides, a conquistador, testified that he had witnessed the said Calderon had discovered the whereabouts of several baskets filled with golden ornaments and items that the natives had hidden from the Spaniards. Apparently he got lucky and did find treasures. That made his fame wider, says Chachiac. People came to him and asked him for help in finding lost things, lost people, lost treasures, services for which Calderon was paid. His superpowers were, of course, false, says Chachiac. If Calderon could have made himself invisible or teleported between continents, he could have escaped his trial. That, Chachiac added, is always the problem with people who claim they could perform black magic. The conquistadors always challenged them to practice their black art. But they didn't do it. They couldn't do it, says Chachiac. In the end, Calderon was just a man who had made great claims and was now facing a trial. Obviously, he was just boasting, Chachiac said. with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hyo Silver, the Lone Ranger. One of my favourite TV shows from the 1960s when I was a child growing up here in Brisbane in Australia, The Lone Ranger. And from week to week as we watched the show, we never did know who was that masked man. From the www.mentalfloss.com website, the court ordered unmasking of the Lone Ranger. And it's written by Rob Lemmy. It's not unusual for actors to become so synonymous with the characters they play that they're forever known as that character. Think Adam West as Batman, Wayne Knight as Seinfeld's Newman, and Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Usually actors try to avoid this kind of relationship with their characters. But there was one man who really embraced it. Clayton Moore, better known as the Lone Ranger. Moore played the Ranger on TV from 1949 to 1951, when he was replaced by John Hart, allegedly due to a contract dispute with the producers. But when oil baron turned television producer Jack Rather bought the rights to the Lone Ranger for $3 million in 1954, Moore returned to the saddle again, lasting until 1957 when the show was cancelled. During this time, Moore also starred in three Lone Ranger movies, 1955's The Lone Ranger Rides Again, 1956's The Lone Ranger, and 1958's The Lone Ranger and the Lost City of Gold. Between the big screen and 169 episodes of the show, there was no question that Clayton Moore was the Lone Ranger in the eyes of American kids. Although the TV show and movies had run their course, that didn't mean Moore was done with his iconic cowboy persona. He was so in love with the character that he quit acting to become the Lone Ranger full-time. 
Along with the white horse he called Silver, Moore donned the black mask and silver six-gun revolvers to appear at charity events, fairs and festivals, and in paid advertisements. Everywhere he went, he always took time out to talk to youngsters about staying away from drugs, alcohol, smoking and swearing. The crowds loved him, and he was in high demand for years to come. But Moore's career hit a speed bump in 1978, when Jack Rather, who still owned the rights to the character, obtained a court order barring him from appearing in public as the Lone Ranger. The suit came because Universal Pictures felt it was time for a new take on the legendary masked man. The reboot was going to be a younger, hipper, more modern cowboy. So the last thing they wanted was a 64-year-old man travelling around the country yelling, Hi-ho, Silver! Away! Aside from the intellectual property issues, Rather pointed out that Moore's original contract contained a clause saying that he could not present himself as the Lone Ranger without written consent from Rather, which Moore had never received. After a year-long court battle, Moore lost the right to wear the mask in 1979, a move that devastated both him and his fans. Moore was quoted as saying, it felt like a slap in the face. But while Rather might have won in the eyes of the court, it was Moore who won in the eyes of the public. After the verdict had been handed down, Moore appeared on more than 250 talk shows, now wearing dark, wraparound sunglasses instead of the mask. In addition, Moore claimed, I received nearly half a million passionate, supportive letters from adoring fans. Perhaps the most famous moment of his post-mask career occurred in 1980, when the popular show Real People ran a story on the controversy. After a taped segment featuring interviews with fans upset over how Moore had been treated, the man himself came onto the stage for a live broadcast interview. The studio audience exploded in riotous applause that lasted so long it ate up the entire time Moore was slated to appear. The producers had to cut away to commercials before he even got the chance to thank his fans for their support. In part because of the bad press surrounding the demasking of Clayton Moore when Universal Pictures' The Legend of the Lone Ranger was released in 1981, audiences stayed far away. The picture was a box office bomb, making the beginning an unceremonious end of the Hollywood career of its young star, Clinton Spilsbury. True to the spirit of the character he loved, in his 1996 autobiography, I Was That Masked Man, Moore had to say this about the film's poor reception. Many people expected me to feel smug and satisfied, but I would never wish failure on anyone. Moore countersued rather, hoping to regain the right to wear the mask again, but the proceedings carried on for many years, until September 20, 1984, when in a surprise move, Jack Rather suddenly dropped the case. Although no official reason was given, Rather died a month later, so it would seem the old man had a change of heart. On October 17, Moore's agent received a letter from Benita Rather, Jack's wife, that read, Please be advised that Rather Corporation hereby grants to Clayton Moore the rights to wear the Lone Ranger mask. Finally, the Lone Ranger could ride again. 
Clayton Moore continued to appear as a Lone Ranger for many years before dying of a heart attack on December 28, 1999. As any Hollywood icon should, he received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1987. However, his is the only star to feature both his name and the name of the character he personified. The worst place in Florida to discover an ancient mystery is on prime real estate in downtown Miami. Not only is this the story about an ancient mystery, it's also about a struggle to save history from the developer's bulldozer. The Sunshine State has lost more historical sites to development than to any other cause, which is why local historians say, when money talks, history walks. From the www.weirdus.com website Mysterious Miami Circle Southern Stonehenge or Septic System In 1998, while demolishing an old building in downtown Miami to make way for a new high-rise condominium, a 38-foot diameter circular pattern of holes was uncovered cut into the limestone bedrock. It was one of the greatest discoveries in Florida archaeology. But there was a great big problem. It was sitting on a $10 million piece of property that was estimated to be worth 20 times that amount if the two-acre site was developed into a condominium complex. The location is in the centre of the city on the south side of the Miami River. Archaeologists from the Miami-Dade County's Historic Preservation Division examined the weird circle and determined that the holes were used to support posts for a large round council house. The circle was estimated to have been built between 1 and 2,000 years ago by the Tequesta Indians, who had died out centuries before the Seminoles migrated to the Florida Peninsula. Not everyone agreed with the findings and argued that the circle was nothing more than the remains of an old septic tank and that the holes were overflow drain holes cut in the limestone. One man postulated that the pre-Columbian circle was part of a worldwide system of ancient circles that was somehow connected with Stonehenge. This theory caused some to dub the circle Limestonehenge. Others claimed it was a sacred Mayan astronomical observatory for marking the passage of time. Opinions ranged from the circle having a connection to Atlantis to being a corner marker for the Bermuda Triangle. Media reports soon attracted new age types, historians, Seminole Indians, shamans, spiritualists and school kids, all wanting a glimpse of the ancient discovery or to experience its supernatural qualities. The Miami Circle was designated the Brickle Point Archaeological Site. It sits on land once owned by William Brickle, a pioneer who ran an early trading post. William Brickle's weird mausoleum is nearby. I say weird 
because it is empty. When Miami began getting too crowded, Brickell's remains were removed by his descendants and reinterred in a Dade County cemetery. Excavating the ancient circle was not an easy task. Previously, six two-storey apartment buildings and a swimming pool had occupied the property and the ground was filled with rusty plumbing pipes, reinforcement steel, concrete and other debris. After a tremendous amount of labour, the site was eventually cleared, exposing at least 200 other post holes cut in the limestone, in addition to the ones forming the weird circle. Other features uncovered included a carving in the stone of a large eye motif, 24 rectangular basins, a complete carapace of a sea turtle, a shark skeleton, and teeth from an extinct monk seal, and a human. The most curious items were fragments of copper and galena, along with two small axe heads crafted from basalt. Since none of the material is indigenous to Florida, it indicated that these early people had an extensive trade network 2,000 years ago. Several of the exotic artefacts uncovered at the circle led archaeologists to believe that the site was used for ritualistic or elite ceremonial purposes. This was supported by the shark and turtle remains that were found in what appeared to be an east-west orientation, perhaps deliberately placed for ceremonial reasons. A surveyor carefully calculated that solitary holes found 41 feet on each side of the circle's centre could predict the autumnal equinox and the summer and winter solstices. It added fuel to the theory that the circle was Mayan built as a giant astronomical calendar or some kind of ancient almanac, and that the eye motif carved in the limestone, that's the Mayan symbol for zero. The idea that the circle was a Mayan project is not so far-fetched when you consider how close the Yucatan Peninsula is to the tip of Florida and the Maya did in fact build seagoing canoes. It would have been easy for Mayan mariners to ride the Gulf Stream over to Florida, although returning home may have been a problem. The Miami Circle was indeed a great archaeological find that needed serious study but it was standing in the way of a multi-million dollar development. The press played up the events, which attracted so many people that the place had to be fenced off. For those who could not make it to Miami, a camera was fixed to the roof of a nearby high-rise to beam pictures to the internet. Soon there were 200 websites carrying news about the Miami Circle and an online petition for saving the site. The 2,000-year-old circle had evolved into a kind of shrine that was magnetically drawing attention from around the world. Maybe there really was something magic about this circle. Save the Circle groups held candlelight vigils while protesters made daily marches with signs demanding the site be protected against development. Thousands of letters poured into government offices requesting action from local and state representatives. Experts in an attempt to save the circle even studied the possibility of making a gigantic plaster cast of the site or sawing it up in sections and moving it to a safer location. At one point, due to legal proceedings, permission was needed from the presiding circuit court judge just to see the circle. In October 2003, Senator Bob Graham introduced legislation 
that would authorise a feasibility study for incorporating the prehistoric site into the Biscayne National Park. When I visited the circle, people were kept back by a security fence, and the entire site was covered by sheets of black plastic. Ultimately, Miami-Dade County, using the law of eminent domain, claimed the 2.2-acre site, and it was subsequently purchased for $26.7 million, with a combination of funding coming from the state's conservation and recreational lands program, local contributions, and a loan from the Trust for Public Land. To preserve the site until more study can be made, the circle has been covered with gravel. The ancient people who once occupied this site could have never dreamed of the commotion their weird circle would stir up 2,000 years later in downtown Miami, or that images of their work would flash around the world on the internet. Perhaps the weirdest part of the Miami Circle's case is how the ancient past has collided head-on with the present. Maybe the ancients have sent us a message in this circle. If so, we just have to figure out what it is. Few buildings are as iconic as the White House, the residence and office of the President of the United States. Indeed, the White House has been the site of many historical events and has played host to a great deal of important historical figures. What few people realise, though, is that the White House is perhaps one of the most haunted places in the United States. Numerous public officials and staff members have recounted stories of bizarre occurrences or eerie sightings. President Harry Truman once wrote to his wife that the damned place is haunted, sure as shootin'. This list details the specific areas that supposedly see the greatest amount of ghostly activity at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. From the listverse.com the top 10 haunted areas of the White House. Number 10. The Attic. William Henry Harrison holds the dubious distinction of being the shortest serving president and the first to die in office, succumbing to pneumonia a mere month after his inauguration. However, subsequent residents have believed that Harrison's ghost still haunts the White House attic, rummaging around for something unknown. Several presidents have reportedly heard the unexplained noises coming from the attic above the Oval Office. Others report that Harrison is not alone. A Truman-era security guard once reported hearing, I am David Burns, coming from the attic above the Oval Office. In 1790, David Burns was the man forced to surrender his land so that the White House could be built. Number 9. The Rose Garden The Rose Garden is one of the commonly used sites for presidential announcements. It's also the site of a particularly creepy haunting. 
The garden was originally planted by First Lady Dolly Madison in the early 1800s. A century later, when First Lady Ellen Wilson requested that the garden be dug up, garden workers reported that Madison's ghost appeared and prevented them from destroying her garden. Since then, other White House insiders have reported an occasional and inexplicable smell of roses in the White House. These instances are often credited to Madison's ghost. Number 8. The Basement White House lore tells of something particularly dire lurking in the basement. Unlike other areas of the White House that are inhabited by spirits of figures from American history, the basement is said to be the home of a demon cat. Those who have reportedly seen the cat claim that it first appears as a small kitten, but as you get closer, it becomes a larger and larger phantom beast. According to the legend, many years will pass with no one encountering the demon cat. But when it does appear, it serves as a warning of a great national disaster. The demon cat was supposedly sighted shortly before the great stock market crash of the 1920s and right before President Kennedy's assassination. Number 7. The Second Floor Halls The second floor of the White House is a residence for the first family. So many of the stories that emerge from this area come from presidents and their families. One of the most frequently reported White House ghosts is President Abraham Lincoln, and the second floor hallways are some of his favourite haunts. Lincoln has been seen or heard by many residents, including First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. President Truman once claimed to have heard Lincoln pacing the hallway and knocking on his bedroom door. It's not just Lincoln in the halls. President William Howard Taft became the first person to report seeing the ghost of First Lady Abigail Adams, who he saw floating through doors on the second floor. Number 6. The Second Floor Bedrooms Various bedrooms on the second floor are used for the President's family and other guests. One husband and wife pair reported that the ghost of a British soldier tried to set fire to their bed. It is presumed that this soldier was the man who set fire to the White House during the War of 1812. In addition, President Lyndon B. Johnson's daughter Linda once reported seeing the ghost of Lincoln's son Willie, who had died in the very room in which she was staying. Other reported activity includes the ghostly screams of President Grover Cleveland's wife, the first woman to give birth in the White House. Following renovations in 1952, activity in the bedrooms has decreased significantly. Number 5. The Yellow Oval Room During Lincoln's administration, this room was his personal library and one of his favourite rooms in the White House. Numerous White House employees have reportedly seen Lincoln gazing out the windows of this room. First Lady Grace Coolidge also claimed to have seen him there. In addition to Lincoln, the disembodied voice of David Burns has been heard from this room. 
First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln also reported seeing the ghosts of both President Thomas Jefferson and John Tyler here. Number four, the North Portico. The White House entrance has a number of notable ghost fixtures. A torch-wielding British soldier is often seen standing outside the front door. People have also reported seeing long-deceased White House ushers and doormen still tending to their duties. Perhaps most bizarre is the ghost of Anne Surratt, whose mother was hanged in 1865 for her role in the Lincoln assassination. Anne's ghost has been spotted pounding on the White House doors, begging for her mother's release. She is also reported to sit on the front steps every July 7, the anniversary of her mother's execution. Number 3. The East Room The East Room is the favourite haunt of Abigail Adams's ghost. During her tenure in the White House, this was the room in which she would hang her laundry. She is often seen in or en route to the East Room with her arms outstretched as though carrying a laundry basket. Sightings were particularly abundant during the Taft administration. But as recently as 2002, a group of tourists reportedly saw Adams. In addition to her sightings, many people report the faint smell of laundry soap around this area. Lincoln has also been spotted here, the room in which his body lay in state. Number 2. The Rose Room The Rose Bedroom is frequented by its former occupant, President Andrew Jackson. Numerous White House employees have seen or heard Jackson in the room, often engaged in hearty laughter or swearing violently. According to White House law, there is an inexplicable cold spot on the canopy bed in the room where Jackson slept. Among the most notable reports, Mary Todd Lincoln claimed to have heard Jackson swearing and White House seamstress Lillian Parks felt his presence over her which she recounted in her memoirs about her time in the White House. Not to be outdone, Lincoln has also been spotted here. When Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands stayed in this bedroom, she answered a knock on the door one night and saw Lincoln's ghost standing in the hallway. And finally, number one, the Lincoln bedroom. Given Lincoln's frequent appearance at various places on this list, it is no wonder that his bedroom comes in at number one. Winston Churchill famously refused to sleep in the bedroom ever again after seeing the ghost beside the fireplace. Churchill, it should be noted, had just emerged from a bath and was completely nude during the encounter. Beyond those already listed as seeing Lincoln in other places, he has been spotted by Presidents Teddy Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover and Dwight Eisenhower, First Ladies Jackie Kennedy and Lady Bird Johnson, and presidential children Susan Ford and Maureen Reagan. Maureen and her husband both saw Lincoln standing beside the fireplace, just as Churchill has seen him. Other guests have reported that lights in the bedroom will turn themselves on and inexplicable cold spots will occur in the room.
and from the paranormal.about.com website. He may be the best known and most elusive of all cryptozoological creatures in North America. How good is the evidence for the existence of Bigfoot? North America has its own monster, while Scotland has its Loch Ness Sea Serpent and the Himalayas has its abominable snowman or yeti, North America lays claim to the Sasquatch, or as he's been nicknamed, Bigfoot. Sasquatch, a seven to eight foot tall man ape, has been sighted in North America for centuries. Before the European invasion, North Americans were very familiar with this hairy giant that lived in the wilderness. One of the earliest recorded sightings of Sasquatch by a white man occurred in 1811 near what is now Jasper, Alberta, by a fur trader named David Thompson. Since then there have been many sightings of the creature in Western Canada and in many states of the US, especially the Pacific Northwest, Ohio and even as far south as Florida, where the swamp-dwelling beast is known as the skunk ape. Is Sasquatch merely legend or a remarkably elusive reality. What's the evidence? Personal accounts of sightings are plentiful and deserve weight because of their numbers. Physical evidence, such as footprints and hair samples, is rarer. And recordings on film and video, rarer still. Here's a look at some of the best, and always controversial, evidence for the existence of Sasquatch. footprints. He isn't called Bigfoot for nothing. There have been more than 900 footprints attributed to Bigfoot collected over the years, having an average length of 15.6 inches. The average width is 7.2 inches. That's one Bigfoot. By comparison, the foot of a 7-foot 3-inch basketball player, a rarity to say the least, is 16.5 inches long but only 5.5 inches wide. Through 1958 and 1959, Bob Titmus and others found numerous Bigfoot tracks in the area of Bluff Creek, where the famous Patterson-Gimlin film was shot several years later. In 1988, wildlife biologist John Bindenagel of Vancouver Island found massive footprints in the snow and heard a whoop-whoop call in the woods. His evidence includes 16-inch human-like footprints found in Strathcona Provincial Park while hiking. In addition, Bindenagel said he heard a strange ape-like call at a friend's cabin near Lake Comox in 1992. Bindenagel said he knows of no other creature in North America that makes such a call and he believes it was a Sasquatch trying to communicate with its own kind. Dwellings and Graves Although by no means verified or authenticated, there have been claims of discoveries of Sasquatch dwellings and even burial sites. Dallas Gilbert says he has had several encounters with Bigfoot, but his most controversial claim is for that of a possible Bigfoot community and burial site. Gilbert's story is weakened by his reluctance to disclose the exact location of the site, However, he has told the Daily Times of Portsmouth, Ohio, there are places where you can see territorial markings and snaps that the creature has made in the trees. 
There are even canopies and bows made of trees for him to sleep under. The burial site is marked by a stone, according to Gilbert. It looks like a tombstone almost, Gilbert said. You can see the outline of the creature's eyes, head and his teeth. No corpses or other remains have been recovered from the area, so all we have is Gilbert's word on these claims. In 1995, Terry Endress and two friends were searching an area known for Bigfoot sightings for a local cable TV show. They chanced upon a large dome-shaped structure constructed of branches and bush. It was large enough for three full-grown men to sit in and was obviously not a natural occurrence. Sounds Not many people have heard the lonely, chilling cries and howls of Bigfoot. But those who have and know the sounds of the wilderness say it's an unforgettable sound like no other. Outdoorsman Bill Munro, a writer for the Portland Oregonian, recounted his experience in an article for the newspaper. Munro was elk hunting when the stillness of the late afternoon was broken by an eerie sound. The deafening, screaming, choking, belching moan from the ridge was chilling, he wrote. The kind of scream that sends mothers scurrying to find their children. The kind of scream no cougar or bear could ever squeeze from their throat, unless it was their last. Piercing, echoing, guttural, a single horrible high-pitched yet throaty, inhuman, unnatural creation of Steven Spielberg that makes your skin crawl. In 1984, Bruce Hoffman was prospecting for gold near the Clackamas River. He told investigator Greg Long this story. I had to park a couple of hundred feet from the river and had to walk a little ways towards the small stream that was running into the river. And just before I got to the small tributary, I would say from one-eighth of a mile to a quarter of a mile away, down in the woods, I started hearing this yell or a call. The sound had a bass tone, a muscular sound to it, and the sound got loud. You could hear how it went up through the trees and up to the sky. The sound travelled about three to four miles to the ridge of the mountains. You could hear the sound hit the mountain. Smells Invariably the sighting of a Sasquatch is accompanied by a very strong, very foul odour. In June 1988, Sean Fries was camping on the North Fork of California's Feather River. I climbed into my tent and lay down on my bedroll. I let my dogs run around because they always stay close to camp. I started to doze off when suddenly I woke up. It was dead quiet. No crickets. Nothing. And my dogs came running into my tent, shaking. I grabbed my rifle and flashlight and stepped outside the tent. I couldn't see anything, but I felt the sensation of being watched. Then I heard some very heavy footsteps right behind me in the trees. There was also a very strange odour, almost like a cross between a skunk and something dead. This thing circled my campsite all night long. Sightings There is no shortage of Bigfoot sightings, some being more compelling than others and sounding more authentic. Here are some examples from experienced outdoors people that lend credence to the legend. Clayton Mack, a Native American of the Nuxalt Nation, 
knows the Canadian wilderness and its creatures as well as any man alive. A reputable grizzly bear hunter for 53 years, Mac relates this tale. I was fishing in Quetna, all by myself in August. I had a 30-foot boat with a single-cylinder engine. I got to Jacobson Bay, about 15 miles from Bellacoola, when I saw something on the edge of the water. It was kneeling down like, and I could see his back humping up on the beach. It looked like he was lifting up rocks or maybe digging clams. But there were no clams there. I turned the boat right in towards him. I wanted to find out what it was. For a while there I thought it was a grizzly bear. Kind of light colour fur on the back of his neck like a light brown. I nosed right in towards him to almost 75 yards to get a good look. He stood up on his hind feet, straight up like a man, and I looked at it. He was looking at me. Gee, it don't look like a bear. It has arms like a human being. It had legs like a human being. And it got a head like us. I keep on going in toward him. He started to walk away from me, walking like a man on two legs. He was about eight feet high. He got to some drift logs, stopped and looked back at me. He looked over his shoulder to see me. Grizzly bear don't do that. I never see a grizz run on its hind legs like that. And I never see a grizzly bear look over its shoulder like that. I was right close to the beach now. He stepped up on those drift logs and walked into the timber. Stepped on those logs like a man do. I watched as he went a little higher up the hill. The wind blew me in toward the beach. So I backed up the boat and kept on going to Quatna Bay. In 1995, Paul Freeman, a veteran Bigfoot hunter, Ball Lavery, a former game warden, followed the sound of odd screams that were heard in the Blue Mountains of southeast Washington state. Joined by Wes Summerlin, a local resident, they hiked to an area where Bigfoot tracks had been found. In a clearing, the men found several small trees, twisted, broken and dripping sap. Caught on the trees were large clumps of long black and brown hair. They caught sight of a seven-foot ape-like creature and heard the screams of two others. They observed the creature through binoculars at a distance of 90 feet, eating yellow wood violets. The trackers also found droppings, two to five inches long, full of half-eaten caterpillar ants and fallen trees that had been pulled apart for the ants inside. Hair samples. Tufts and strands of hair thought to come from Sasquatch have not added to the weight of evidence for the reality of the creature. Most hair samples proved to be that of bears or other non-primates. Promising samples were obtained in 1995 by Freeman, Lowry and Summerlin. The hair samples gathered by the three men were sent to Ohio State University for DNA analysis. Dr. W. Henna Farenbach determined microscopically that the hair appeared to have come from two individuals of the same species, that it differed in colour, length and hair growth cycle between the two sets, had not been cut and was indistinguishable from human hair by any criterion. Ultimately the tests were inconclusive. The researchers said that the DNA extracted from both hair shafts or roots hair demonstrably fresh, was too fragmented to permit gene sequencing.
photos, film or video. Photos, film footage and video of Sasquatch are extremely rare. At worst, they are murky, fuzzy and inconclusive. At best, when they are clear, they are highly controversial and suspected of being hoaxes. The Patterson-Gimlin film is by far the most famous and most scrutinised footage ever taken of Bigfoot. Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin shot the footage in 1967 with a 16mm camera while on an expedition to find the elusive creature in the Bluff Creek area of the Six Rivers National Forest in Northern California. Large footprints had been found in this region in previous years. Debate among various experts over the authenticity of the film has been ongoing for 30 years. In recent years, some people have come forward to claim that they participated in the hoaxing of the film, but even their testimony has been called into question. In September 1998, David Shearley took 27 photographs of the seven-foot-tall creature in the Everglades. I had been sitting up in the tree for about two hours every night for the past eight months, Shearley said. I dozed off for a little while, and when I woke up, I saw it coming straight at me. At first I thought it was a man, but then I realised it was the skunk ape. Shearley followed the tracks of the animal and made what he said could be the biggest skunk ape discovery. Small footprints, he says, appear to be from a baby skunk ape. Shearley now estimates that there are between 9 and 12 skunk apes roaming the Everglades, and said most people who have spotted the creature usually see them in groups of three or four. And finally, close contact. There are very few cases of close contact or physical contact with Sasquatch, and many that have been reported are quite suspect. Stan Johnson claims to be one such contactee. Stan says he first met the seven-foot-tall wild man when he was a boy near his home in the Ozarks. Every day after school, Stan says he would meet the Sasquatch in the woods and talk with him. Since then, he's had several other encounters and believes the creature comes from another dimension. Johnson's is a strange, strange story. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at www.origins.info. And remember, if you can provide feedback for the show, whether it be through iTunes or some other place where you download it from the internet or via email, it's always greatly appreciated. From the paranormal.about.com website, Elf or Chameleon in the Truck. This took place in March 2012, 
outside a small gas station in the outskirts of upstate New York. It was a few months after my 20th birthday when this happened. I am the eldest daughter of my mother and father. I'm not a little kid with an overactive imagination. My mother had been having health problems and we were taking her for a checkup with a specialist four hours away. As I had the back seat with my brother, I took a book to keep me occupied. I grabbed a copy of Lord of the Rings. I've read it before. I don't know why, I just grabbed it. Halfway there we stopped somewhere to get gas. We've been there before, but it was in the middle of nowhere. The station was small and there was only one other car there other than our own. I just started to read the book and I half glanced as we pulled in. I saw an elf in a green pickup truck dart out in front of us. Yeah, my brain took a second to register what happened. I thought maybe something cross-fired because I was reading at the same time. What it looked like to me was Elrond, the elf lord, was driving the truck. Now I'm not making this up and I'm not saying that it was him. So I turned my head as it pulled up alongside of us. The driver I saw had long flowing black hair. This I saw clearly. It was styled like in the movie. It even looked like the actor. But they were wearing normal clothes. He had a peach reddish muscle shirt on and grey and green army pants. So I let myself off the hook because the guy did sort of look like that. I was about to say to my family, Did you guys see that guy's hair? When my father said, You know who that looked like? Mum said, Your mother? Grandma doesn't drive. Dad said, No, Mr Brown, a guy my dad used to work for. And my brother thought that it looked like some famous quarterback. So I listened to them argue for a few minutes, and my dad finally won. Whatever it was, he was winning. I didn't voice my opinion. I didn't want to tell everyone that I saw an elf. The thing of it is, none of these people look even remotely similar. They were born decades apart and are in various stages of health. The thing that got me thinking that this was something really strange was after a while I realised I even recognised his clothes. There was a video game magazine sitting at home in my brother's room that I had just removed from the car that morning. I had spent hours in the car staring at the same picture until we cleaned out the debris. There was this commando wearing a muscle shirt and grey and green army pants, exactly like the guy in the car, except for it being peachish, reddish, which reminded me of Elrond. It's like he changed into the first normal and familiar clothes that I thought of. And from the www.yourghoststories.com website, a scary camping evening. It was in 1971, I was in my late 20s. I was then staying in Rose Hill, Mauritius, not married yet and staying with my folks. One day my dad came home with a South African couple. He met them while coming back home and they were tourists visiting Mauritius with their backpacks, tents and sleeping bags. Mauritius was still safe in that period, but independence was given by Great Britain in 1968, and a civil war had just come to an end a few months before. Two communities had fought for some political reasons. 
Anyway, my dad invited them home to sleep over for a few days. I remember the guy had a big blonde beard. He was very kind. His wife was as well, but I forgot her face. We decided to organise camping during a weekend on the coast of Mauritius, in a place called Flickenflack. This place, which is now pretty developed, was at that time very wild, with just a few houses. We went on a Saturday morning, found a nice place to put a tent and organised the day. The South African man and his wife were very good swimmers and divers. We spent a lot of time in the sea, catching fish, crabs some lobsters, which were getting scarce then. We don't find them anymore by the coast. And cooked all these goodies on a small homemade barbecue set. All of us, mum, dad, the couple and I, really enjoyed the day. The sunset was beautiful, it was warm, we were in summer and everything was perfect. When night came we prepared a nice barbecue with chicken, beef and pork and a few shrimps we had caught earlier. The night was starry, my dad was happy and drunk and the couple was obviously having a great time. Since we were not fluent in English, I was improving then, communication was a bit difficult but we could make ourselves understand with gestures and sometimes drawing on the sand. It was great fun seeing my dad trying to converse with them with a very limited knowledge of English. Anyway, it must have been around 9pm. We were all seated on the beach watching the ocean as well as the starry sky by the campfire. It was so beautiful. Then we started to hear like a complaint. We could not determine the origin of the sound but it was like a woman wailing. It was faint but clear since the place we were in was wild and remote. The wailing was not constant, but could be heard from time to time. We put it on the sound of some sorts of animal, since we were not people living on the coast, thus being ignorant of animals which could be active at night. We were seated on the beach facing the ocean when suddenly we noticed someone coming out of the sea on our left about 30 to 40 metres away. It looked like a woman with a long white dress just walking from the sea to the beach. We could not see her face but could guess she had long hair. The only lights were the stars and our bonfire. She silently walked straight and disappeared from view into the vegetation. We found this very odd. I knew it was not normal, but we did not know what the others were thinking. My dad was drunk and watched the scene with a little smile on his face. I think he was lost in his thoughts. We all looked at each other and did not know what to think. I tried to check if there was a house where the woman walked to. I just stood up and walked towards the sea and looked on my left to see where she went. There was only green bush and trees. There were no lights or any constructions around. I was now scared because I was realising that we must have seen a ghost. I walked back to the bonfire and sat and told everyone that I did not find any house there. We stopped talking and everyone kept alert. We could now hear all the little noises of the night. We heard faint crackling like someone or an animal quietly walking on dry leaves. Then suddenly we heard loud flapping noises on a tree nearby. It looked like large birds or pigeons or bats flying away. It scared us. Then my mum told me quietly she felt that something was not right. I and she were feeling watched. The couple was looking around with their glass in their hands. 
Then suddenly something heavy fell in front of us on the beach, about five to six metres away. I stood up to see what it was, but could not find anything. Everybody stood up and looked around. Nothing was found. Despite the fact that the night was clear and sweet, the atmosphere had changed. Apart from my father, who was in a trip because he was too drunk, we were all scared by then. The couple talked between them and I could not understand. They seemed quite concerned about the situation. I did not know what to do. Could we stay there or maybe go to sleep? Or maybe we had to leave. That was a pity. We were enjoying such a nice time before seeing that woman. Then in the middle of the night we heard this bone-chilling scream, like a woman being attacked. It seemed close to our camp. We were on our feet with our eyes about to pop out from their sockets. My heart was pounding so loud I thought the others could hear it. The couple started to pick up their stuff and my dad followed them. Mum and I packed away everything quickly. As we were doing so, some coconuts fell and rolled on our camp as if someone had thrown them away. We were now scared to death and no one would talk. We were running on the beach, then in the woods, but could not see anything. We quickly put the stuff in the car, and it was not easy because we did not have a big car, and we had to take time to pack things so they could fit in when we came down. Now we had to pile up things. The worst was the barbecue. It was hot and dirty, and we didn't want to leave it. I burnt myself twice while trying to put it away. While we were packing things away, things were happening around us. The screams seemed to originate from different places, and there was a lot of noises going on. We all got into the car practically one upon the other with stuff on us. I decided to take the wheel because my dad was too drunk. As we moved away, we got a shock. We saw a woman dressed in white standing by the little lane looking at us. It was bone chilling. I stopped the car. She was standing four to five metres away. I did not know what to do. I was too scared to move closer to her, but it was the only way out. We waited a few minutes as she was standing there staring at us. I heard my mum praying and the South African couple mumbling something between them. Suddenly we heard a bang like something hitting the car behind. We all turned to see what had happened. The atmosphere was very tense and I think my dad was becoming sober very quickly. He was now swearing. We did not see anything behind, but when I looked forward, the woman was not there anymore. But the scariest thing had happened. She was now standing by my door, looking at me. I can't describe the utter fear which took hold of me then. I released a scream. My throat was sore several days after, and pushed the gas pedal. I think everybody screamed then. But with panic, the car choked, and the woman was still there looking at us. I remember not seeing her eyes or features because it was dark. I switched on the car again and drove off as fast as I could. The poor car got shaken on the dirt road. We reached the main road relieved and shouting. What the hell had we seen and experienced? Fortunately, Rose Hill is not far from Flick and Flack, but when we reached the town, the car broke down. The fan belt of the car had broken and the engine stopped from overheating. We were in the 70s. No cell phones or any towing services available a Saturday evening. The couple and my mum walked home, which was not very far. My dad and I stayed by the car. At home, mum phoned a friend of my dad who was not staying far away to tow away our car. We finally reached home at about 11.30, 
completely exhausted. My dad's friend who had helped us was invited to have a coffee and we told him what had happened. Then he said that this place in Flick and Flack was haunted and several people encountered that woman. He said that we were lucky because there had been accounts of people walking to the sea like being in a trance and never coming back, getting drowned by possession, really scary and unbelievable. Some would be hurt by objects being thrown at them. A woman apparently lost her baby while being pregnant. She was a few weeks away from delivery, but after coming to that place and seeing the ghost, she had pain in her stomach and started to bleed a few hours later. She had to go through surgery where they noted that the baby had died. These events would not always happen, but would take place randomly. The South African couple stayed two more days at home and left. We never saw or heard of them afterwards. I later discovered that there was a cemetery on the other side of the road. Not too close to the road though. I never knew who that woman, ghost, was, but it seemed that she would regularly come out of the ocean and walk to the cemetery. However, in the late 80s, there was no accounts of seeing her up to today. I think that urban development has made it, or made her, change her plans. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 61 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. The top 10 haunted areas of the White House. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And remember, if you can provide feedback for the show, please do. It helps the podcast to keep a high profile. And it's also greatly appreciated by myself. Until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now.